Containers have become the unit of infrastructure that many technology stacks deploy to. With the shift to containers, the attack surface of an application has changed, and we need to reconsider our security models. The resource allocation of our containers, the interaction between different containers on a single machine, the big picture, how the external web may interact with our containers, there are so many different things that we need to consider when we move the security model to a world with containers. Phil Estes of IBM joins the show today to discuss container security, as well as the OCI and container orchestration and other container-related topics. It's a in-depth container-related episode. Phil Estes is a senior engineer with IBM. Phil, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so you have been talking about container security at conferences for a while, and I've learned through the conversations on this show that regardless of what application domain we're discussing, whether it's cars or a database or a chat application, if we're talking about security, the place to start a security discussion is often this discussion of an attack surface. When we're talking about containers, what does that term attack surface entail? Yeah, so uh, good question. Um, there is a sense in which the attack surface on applications um, doesn't change necessarily because of uh, the sort of domain that's running it, whether it's a virtual machine or container. Um, so we kind of have to divide, uh, I think, our our uh, our view uh, of the attack surface into what stays the same and, and what's different. And I think the, the what's different uh, is what has been interesting as containers have become more popular is the desire to understand um, what are the, the strengths and weaknesses of this contained environment that seems kind of like VMs to people when they first hear what a container is, but, but we know technologically it's quite a bit different. And so uh, much of the attack surface uh, when we're talking about containers has to do with, uh, if I'm relying on, on Linux, and Linux containers are kind of, um, for the most part, all that we have. I, I think we could talk about the history and, and look at some other Unix operating systems and, and the fact that Microsoft is also implementing a container uh, paradigm inside the Windows kernel. But let's just focus on Linux uh, for now. Um, when we're talking about the attack surface, then we're asking whether the Linux kernel primitives that create a container, are they... Um, safe? Can they be broken out of? Are there weaknesses? And so that that's really, I think, where a lot of the focus has been on containers is how can I trust uh, my container execution environment, whether that's Docker or, or some other existing technology, to truly keep my application separate from other processes uh, on the Linux host. Hmm. You, you mentioned the wider definition of containers and since we are going to be talking about containers during this conversation it might be worth defining that term because in two years from now maybe we're not going to be talking about docker containers uh maybe we're going to be talking about some different container technology that's related to docker or is it 
is a descendant of Docker. In a fundamental sense, what is a container? I have asked people that question before. Uh, you get different different answers. What are the properties of of a container that we need to think about when we're thinking about security? What are the properties of a container that we need to secure? Yeah, good question. And hopefully uh, my answer might line up with, with one or two prior guests. We'll see. Um, so... In the Linux world, um, one of the things that makes containers hard to define is that the uh, Linux kernel has not defined a concrete construct that we could really call a container. And so we're, we're left kind of describing the pieces of kernel technology. Um, there are definitely Linux developers who, who call this combination uh, a container and, and think of the set of capabilities in the kernel as the container API, so to speak. Uh, but really, it's comprised of today at least six uh, namespaces. And so these namespaces are the isolation primitives in the Linux kernel. And so we're talking about the mount namespace. So what does my file system look like when I'm in my own mount namespace versus the host? Uh, the PID namespace, so what processes do I see? If I'm in my own PID namespace, then I better only see my own processes. Um, the user namespace, which is a uh, probably the most recent of all the namespaces developed in Linux, that says I can now segment out even the user ID and group ID um, ranges for a container. Um, the network namespace, so you know, my network interfaces, my network routes are all unique. And then there's a few others, the IPC namespace for interprocess communication. So isolating my ability to use shared memory or shared uh, memory resources. Um, and then finally, the UTS namespace really just allows a container to have its own host name and domain name. So those are the, the main isolation primitives that whether you're talking about LXC, which has existed for a while, or CoreOS's Rocket, or Docker, or any other containment um, type execution engines that come along, on Linux at least, they're going to be assembling these namespaces for you, hopefully in a way that isolates you from the rest of the host. And then on top of that, there's resource limitations, which um, are simply called C groups in the Linux world. Uh, control groups is the full uh, moniker. Uh, and they, if namespaces allow me to isolate different pieces of the system, then C groups allows me to control how much of those resources my container uses, whether it's CPU or memory. So hopefully when we talk about container systems, whether it's Docker or something else, at least on Linux, we'll probably end up talking about namespaces and C groups and how we assemble those into what we commonly call a container. Got it. And, you know, you have kind of touched on this, that when we're thinking about securing containers, we may be talking about securing one single container. We can talk about securing the host that is a probably a VM that has several containers running on it. We could talk about perhaps the orchestration system that is managing our containers. So what are, let's start with just the single container. We're talking about just a single container that's running some stuff in it. What are the basic security assumptions that we can make about a single container? 
Yeah, so um, to connect it to what we just discussed, one of the things is that we'll effectively be relying on the fact that uh, whatever container execution engine we've decided to use, we expect that when it set up these namespaces and C groups, that they will actually contain my process, uh, that even if I'm somehow running um, you know, code that's actually trying to test the limitations of these isolation primitives, that uh, effectively I'm, I'm expecting that that's um, a, a wall that can't be breached. Um, so that's kind of our first line of defense is that we expect the Linux kernel developers have worked hard to make sure that all these namespaces don't have uh, leaky isolation mechanisms that somehow can be breached. And, and obviously, um, given that container technology is not new, that many of these namespaces have been being developed for a decade in some cases, um, there have been a lot of CVEs and, and security uh, announcements uh, if you look back in the history of the mailing list for the Linux kernel. Um, but in essence, um, our first line of defense is expecting that the Linux kernel uh, protects my uh, process from, from gaining access to the host and other host information. Um, then also, we haven't touched on this yet because uh, Docker, in a sense, introduced the whole concept of a pre-built image, um, which I, I think is probably one of the reasons that Docker has gained so much uh, popularity compared to maybe other prior um, uh, offerings in, in the container space, is that you now have this Docker hub with uh, thousands of images, your favorite open source database, your, your favorite web server. And so the other thing we have to think about when we're just look, thinking about this single container is how did the code uh, get packaged inside that container and can I trust if I'm using it from a public image um, that it doesn't itself contain uh, rogue code or weaknesses or exploits that haven't been patched. So I think those are kind of the two main areas when we're talking about a single container. Is it truly isolated? Can I depend on those primitives? And if I'm using some kind of um, pipeline that, that got my code into this container, can I trust that pipeline? Do I have the appropriate security measures um, to handle that? Hmm. So when you say, when you're talking about security, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like what you are concerned with is not necessarily the idea of a container getting breached, but more the concern that the container takes more resources than it is designed, that the program it's running is designed to be allocated. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, so, so this is probably where we would um, start to try and understand um, kind of deployment models. So your concerns around containers will probably depend on on where you're placing containers, I guess is one easy way to think of it. Um, if, if I'm putting it in a shared environment, uh, but within my own uh, company's intranet, then my security concerns may be uh, vetted by, by the fact that, uh, that I'm, I'm in somewhat of a trusted environment within my company. Um, if I'm placing them in a shared public cloud, then maybe that changes to some degree um, what what my concerns are. Uh, but definitely in 
in the in the model where we're packing containers together in a single host, then definitely resource allocation becomes um, a concern similar to kind of the whole noisy neighbor problem that even um, has the attention of a VM world of, of VMs on a single host. How much memory, how much CPU can each each of my VMs allocate? So control groups are the analog to that for the container world. Um, definitely that's um, of interest in a shared environment. Uh, but I won't, I won't say that that container breaches aren't uh, important um, as well uh, as a concern, especially. So IBM's public cloud container service model is that we're sharing Docker hosts on bare metal multi-tenant. So the container next to mine uh, might have, uh, might potentially be um, attempting to, to breach other containers, to inspect the system around it. And so in, in that model of a, of a shared public uh, host for containers, then I do have to concern myself with how do I uh, make sure that even a breach could be controlled by other aspects. And that's that's where we'd probably end up talking about um, other technologies like uh, Linux security modules, commonly AppArmor is a, a common one, SE Linux is the other. Um, and other containment mechanisms that make sure that even within a, a environment where I can't trust anyone else, uh, there are certain knobs and switches that let me uh, protect that environment. Yeah, talk talk more about that because you know this situation where we've got a host with several containers. Um, what are the risks that an individual container? poses to other containers on that host are are we thinking mainly about like you said the noisy neighbor problem here or then are, are you starting to think about um oh maybe you don't want to expose you i don't know you want to have some permission settings between what different containers can access from one another uh, you know what do you what do you start to think about when you're when you think about the multi-container interaction security model yeah so um like i said they're they're definitely um that's something that that our own public cloud offering has had to think uh long and hard about we have uh, security researchers who are much uh, more intelligent than me about the the deep sort of security research around um, the kernel and 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 some of these containment mechanisms and you know they've spent several years now uh, looking at, at those issues, and and for my part, I, I get to try and express that in in more common terms, uh, which is both enjoyable, but also I worry sometimes about uh, being asked the the, the harder questions. But um, in, in the in the sense of this particular issue, uh, I think um, there are a couple things that that we worry about. One we've already talked about, which is uh, simple resource usage. So um, say I have a container startup on the same host that I'm located on, and it turns out that um, this container happens to be created by a spammer who all they want to do is use up as much network bandwidth as possible to send out you know, spam email. Um, in this case, it's very important that I have knobs available where I can restrict the IO bandwidth uh, 
for the network ports, uh, similar for disk IO. And these are, thankfully, these are capabilities found uh, within control groups. Uh, these are things that with each version of the Linux kernel, there have been more, um, there's been more enablement of, of these tweaks and knobs to control uh, a process's resource usage. Uh, so definitely that's one area. Um, the other uh, maybe is a bit more th theoretical in the sense of uh, we've already talked about the namespaces and we've sort of expected that there's no way to escape my mount namespace or my PID namespace and start to try and control or, or get information about other processes and other containers. But would that, uh, were that to be possible in the future due to some exploit that is not known yet, um, some of the capabilities of AppArmor um, allow me to write a profile that says, even if this container could see this file system over here, don't ever let it write files here. Uh, in certain cases, don't even let it read files down this file system. And so that adds an extra layer of protection um, were there to be an exploit from a container having full access. And this is also where user namespaces comes into play because if the code in my container is running as root uh, because it needs to uh, start a, a, a web host listening on port 80 and that requires extra privileges in Linux, um, user namespaces allows me to remap that whole ID space inside the container so that even though inside the container I look like I'm the root user on the host, if I were able to break out, I'm actually running as some high-numbered user, maybe 100,000 or 200,000. And if you uh, look on your Linux system, you'll see that uh, user ID 200,000 really has no permissions to do anything of interest on my host. And so that's another protection. So there's a set of layered protections um, that are available. They're available in Docker. They're available in some of the other container um, execution engines. And, and combining these together gives us that added um, protection such that we can feel comfortable running this multi-tenant um, container cloud where I've got multiple containers on the same host and I feel like I have the tools necessary to protect them from each other and also from, uh, in essence, um, denial of servicing the other containers by using all the bandwidth or all the I.O., all the memory, et cetera. Hmm. So we're taking all of this into account, these different layers. We've got the external environment, the host, the containers within that host. How does the security of our applications in this containerized world compare to the old world of perhaps VMs or just bare metal, whatever we were talking about five or ten years ago? the trendy application models then were, were things more secure then or just totally different what's the topology in your perspective yeah so that, that's a great question and one that i think uh, a lot of people have been discussing for a while um maybe not totally important because we are in this new world whether we like it or not but it's, <laughs> it's interesting to compare no it's it's a very good question because you have um well, we see a lot of excitement around containers, and I, I think you can find lots of startups and small companies um, already using them for meaningful work. Um, 
you know, IBM's big enough and old enough that we have customers that take a, a good bit longer to uh, to reach some of these newer technologies that that uh, you know maybe you and I have, have been talking about them for a year or more. Um, so those kind of customers are definitely wanting to see this question answered in ways that give them uh, enough comfort to to start to uh, go down this route. Um, and so I think. Um, you know, my perspective and what I've seen in the last 12 to 18 months, and I feel like it's it's starting to be backed up by uh, very uh, good work like um, the NCC Group's Hardening Linux and Containers document. Uh, Aaron Gratifiori has put that together. It's an excellent, um, very in-depth look at all the container execution options, what they have available for security, what their defaults are. And so uh, that's a long intro into saying that um, I, I perceive that if I containerize my application and use the defaults uh, of Docker, I automatically have a set of capabilities that in the past would have taken um, some engineers thinking seriously about how to write a SETCOM profile, which is secure computing, a capability in the Linux kernel to only allow certain syscalls to be used. I would have had to think hard about um, how to write an AppArmor profile that only allowed my application to write to certain places on the on the disk. Um, so all these things are sort of given to you. Uh, of course, they're they're given in a default mode. You could you could expand them. You could make them tighter. Uh, one of the tightropes that Docker and other providers have to walk is that uh, you don't want to create a by default security profile that hampers uh, container applications from running. But in essence, um, by the very nature that I'm given a set of defaults that are already turned on, uh, we know that uh, developers are lazy. And so if it works, uh, out of the box, then then I'm probably not going to do much else uh, unless I have a very rigorous uh, security, you know, development guideline. And so, uh, compared to the VM world, where I would suggest that that you know, once we got our application packaged, and maybe there were multiple applications in a single VM, uh, we weren't isolating them in the same way that we're getting out of the box isolation out of containers. And so by that, uh, by the nature of that, we've automatically improved application security, even from each other. Uh, so my database from my web server, uh, my Redis cache from, um, you know, the front end of my application, these are already automatically isolated from one another in ways that would have taken some pretty good, you know, engineering work in the past um, that we're getting by default in containers. So I, I would say that we're definitely improving, and uh, I think we'll only see that increase as we move toward a microservices world where we can even be more explicit about what an application is supposed to be doing, and when we see it not doing that, uh, we know that there's been a problem and, and can respond quickly. And so we, even that movement. Uh, which isn't directly tied to containers, but I, I'd say containers are enabling that movement. Um, you know, I think we're going to continue to see uh, an improvement naturally in, in the security profile of applications because of it. Indeed. And uh, do you think there's also a notion of security in operational terms because the idea of a container is so much more dispensable uh, and if something 
going wrong, you can just throw it in the trash and then spin up a new one. Is that does that fall into the purview of security? Well, I, I think one aspect of that that definitely um, has security related um, implications is the fact that um, you know maybe step back even before VMs you sort of have this pristine production environment and nobody should touch it because it's actually working today and let's not, you know, mess that up. Um, so the movement away from that model and, and VMs maybe were a step in the right direction. Um, we sort of could create this pipeline and, and if there was a security uh, issue in our operating system layer, we could regenerate, you know, the VM image with the update and push that to production uh, but containers take it uh, an entire you know level of, of complexity easier, as you said. I, I hopefully already have a sort of CI/CD system where my containers uh, have sort of this pipeline all the way from source to image, um, and so uh, you add to that all of the capabilities being added by various clouds to have automatic scanning of container images. And so I have this immediacy of, okay, security scan has found an issue. Um, let's update that package. Let's regenerate all our containers, uh, go, get that through test and push to production. And just even the aware, the operational awareness is so much higher than, than stepping all the way back to that first example of kind of this pristine production environment that no one should touch. And is anyone even checking on, you know, package? Uh, CVEs. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think definitely the relation of of containers as um, quickly uh, replaceable and cattle, not pets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> pets versus cattle. Yep. Yeah. I would like to shift the conversation to talking about OCI because. Um, you are you have a depth of knowledge in containers and OCI is an area I've been wanting to cover this is the open container initiative could you explain what that is and what why why this got started what's the history of the open container initiative sure um, so the OCI uh, really came out of a desire by um, by many different partners who had a stake in in containers and, and even people who were very active in the Docker community, um, given some of the the challenges of uh, you know competitive environments where uh, I, I noticed you know Brandon Phillips has been on here recently, so CoreOS um, had some uh, issues with with Docker in their direction and created Rocket and the app C specification for containers. And so there was a desire that if we were going to see, you know, potentially various competitive um, offerings arise in the container executor space, that there would at least be a place we could all work together and harmonize on a specification that says uh, for Linux and other operating systems to follow, um, here's the basic idea of a container runtime. If we all, uh, can implement these pieces, then you can say that you're OCI compliant, and we can have a interoperable 
configuration of, of what a container runtime uh, will do with that set of uh, inputs. Uh, that expanded um, earlier this year to add the fact that uh, it's one thing to have the ability to take a set of uh, configured inputs and run a contained process, uh, but also uh, what does it look like to have an interoperable image and what should that contain, what metadata about the image um, describes it and how to run it. And so these two pieces together, the OCI runtime spec and the OCI image spec, are quickly moving toward uh, their 1.0 release candidates. Actually, one of them, uh, the runtime spec, is already at RC2, I believe. Um, and so uh, there's a good community of, of people working on that. Uh, CoreOS is involved, Docker is involved, Red Hat, IBM, Huawei, uh, Google and several others. Um, and so that's been, I, I forgot to add sort of when that was kicked off, but that was announced on stage at DockerCon San Francisco in 2015. So it's been um, sort of in operation as a foundation of, or part of the Linux foundation um, for just over a year now. And so, um, so yeah, the, the intent, Again, a level playing field, interoperable specification, uh, no matter which container executor you choose. Um, hopefully in the future, there'll be a compliance um, uh, set of guidelines and, and, and a certification uh, suite that you can say, okay, my runtime is OCI certified and therefore I'm interoperable with other OCI certified runtimes. Okay, let's dive a little deeper into those two things that the OCI consists of, this container format and the container runtime that we want an open definition for. What is the relationship, I mean, or I guess, what is a definition for a container format? What's a definition for a container runtime? And what is the relationship between those two things? Yeah, so one of the easy ways... Um, to to kind of visualize it is that the uh, part of the founding of the OCI was to create a reference implementation of the runtime spec. And so there's a project called Run C that uh, is also uh, about ready for its 1.0 release. It's already in use by the Docker engine. And so um, it's already received a lot of testing just by nature of it being part of Docker uh, as far as the container execution at the kernel layer is actually being performed by Run C uh, when you use Docker Engine today. Um, so, as I said, Run C is a good picture of the relationship. So, Run C needs two pieces of information to execute your application as a contained uh, process. One, it needs a JSON configuration file. And like we talked about way back at the beginning of, of this episode, um, a big part of that configuration is uh, which namespaces do you want? Do you want all six? Um, and some of them have configurable details. And then secondly, um, beyond this configuration file, and we can talk more about what's in there. There's obviously the name of your command to run and the environment, any environment variables and whether you want um, certain 
uh, host locations mounted uh, as file systems within the container. So, you, so a lot of the same things that you could do, uh, for example, in the Docker run command, much of that's available as options within this JSON configuration. So given I have a configuration file, which you could say is the embodiment of the runtime spec, I also need the actual file system, the actual files that make up that root file system in my container. And so if you think of taking an image from Docker Hub and exporting it into a flat file system, it obviously in many cases looks kind of like a small Linux distribution with the application I want to run uh, and maybe a few other tools around it. And so with those two pieces of information, RunC can execute and start your container. Um, so the image format is a combination of those layers which make up that root file system. And so Docker um, created kind of this concept of a layered file system that's related to their Docker build capability. So I can start with Ubuntu, I can add for maybe the Java, the JVM, I can add Tomcat, and maybe I copy a few configuration files and my war file into this, um, and that, bit, that all those commands basically become a set of layers. And so the image format references all the layers that I need, and, and you can think of those as just uh, tar files of each um, constituent layer. And beyond that, the image format contains um, a, a simple container config of, you know, things like name and the secure hashes of each layer and, and any other metadata. So this is a, the OCI image specification is actually a started with a copy of Docker's uh, existing version two image manifest format. And so that was something that our, that Docker was already using. And so the OCI image spec uh, started with this existing uh, concept. So I don't know if that was, uh, if I made it more convoluted than necessary, but essentially, if you combine both the image spec and this runtime config, those are the inputs necessary for an executor like RunC to run with that and, and start your process uh, with all the configuration options you chose. Okay. And, you know, one thing you mentioned there was the relationship between what OCI is and what Docker was at a certain point, I guess. So what, I mean, when, at a certain point, Docker was kind of the de facto standard for container images. I think kind of, kind of still is, but um, what, what, what is the relationship between the OCI format and runtime and the Docker, uh, the, the Docker format and runtime? Yeah. So at this point, uh, what you have is that Docker has, has basically, uh, in essence, contributed that lower layer uh, to the OCI such that Docker now becomes a consumer of the OCI RunC implementation. And by that, uh, I guess you could say it's kind of uh, funny, but, but Docker by itself can no longer run containers because it's actually using RunC and all that code they contributed to handle setting up the namespaces and the C groups, that all exists within the OCI. And so Docker now becomes uh, 
if you will, the API, the client interface, uh, things at a higher level like lib network, so all the networking support, um, all of the volume management, um, some of the, uh, again, some of the, the more UX-related features of of having a place like Docker Hub to store your images. Right, so these and are more so- subjective decisions. When we talk about the atomic basic unit of what a container is, that is what the OCI is trying to uh, make a, a bare minimum definition for so people can build alternative things, uh, alternative software products that are containers, but they may have different networking strategies, different uh, UX things. And so I think what you, what you said there, tell me if I'm wrong about this, there was a certain point where the OCI said, okay, Docker does things this way. We're going to basically take a, take a snapshot of, of what Docker does, and Docker from now on will, will, will try to be compliant with the OCI, and, and the OCI will just kind of remain this, this de facto standard, and then other things can be built on that standard as well. Is that accurate? Definitely, that, that's that's accurate, and the, the expectation is that it, it softens the um, the confusion around uh, CoreOS having an execution environment called Rocket and Docker having their own execution environment with their own API, um, and it also gave a place for um, some of the lower level functionality for other containment systems so I, I don't know how far we want to move out outside of linux but solaris has zones uh brian cantrell has talked a lot about that with uh with their triton capability joints triton capability so so some of those solaris folks are putting uh, that zones capability into oci so that uh, you could have uh, for example a a tool called run z that higher level interfaces could continue to do all the things they do, such as Docker, but you might replace run C with run Z. And now I'm creating Solaris zones instead of Linux uh, namespaces and C groups. Um, so, so yes, uh, all that to confirm that, that definitely this uh, unit that we're thinking of as a container OCI is taking over kind of that definition such that there can be both higher layer um, abstractions built on top of that where we can all I- at least agree on what the, the the common unit of a container is. And then at the lower layer, it also allows other people to implement that spec and use their own containment strategies, whether it's on in the Windows kernel or Solaris zones or something else. When Solaris... So you, so you said like this, these, the Solaris zones people... Are saying, hey, we're going to add this functionality to the OCI, which is this lower level um, primitive. Why doesn't that break what Docker is doing at a higher level? If Docker is agreeing to comply to a lower level template, why doesn't adding something to the OCI break the higher level products uh, compatibility with OCI? Yeah, so that's where um, there has to be a lot of care taken 
for this OCI interface that it can handle um, other lower layer implementations. And so the specification itself has been uh, worked on diligently to have, whether it's optional sections for operating systems that are unique like Solaris, um, but as long as a higher layer implementer agrees to only uh, interface with the OCI specification, uh, it actually does does work um, in the sense that that as long as the lower layer implementation can fit within the OCI spec, uh, and that's what Microsoft and the Slayers folks are working on right now, um, then the higher la layer doesn't have to know because, again, those interfaces of, of um, start me a container, uh, the name of the application is this, and here's the other metadata, um, then I, I don't have to care what the lower layer is doing on the back end, even if it's a different um, isolation mechanism than C groups and namespaces. That makes sense. Um, so what's the what is the the governance of the OCI? Are there I mean because the, the you know the the example of Solaris zones that sounded like a pretty clean uh, augmentation to the OCI. I imagine there are more contentious things that could arise, like if somebody wants to change some of the more fundamental building blocks of how the OCI works, and you know Docker is on top of the OCI, and Docker might say, "Well, we don't want to be compliant with that thing because it might mess up our." Uh, functionality. So d is that an issue or what's, what are the governance challenges to this OCI? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it actually uh, is something that has been potentially misunderstood. Um, not that Twitter is always the best source of, of information, but, but definitely <laughs> you, can, you can look back and see that there's been confusion around who controls the OCI, what its governance is, and uh, been some interesting back and forth uh, on um, Twitter. Twitter is like a, it's like a eventual, eventually consistent opinion database. Yeah. So like in yes. the short term, you can't trust it at all. But long term, it's it's like the blockchain. Like eventually it, eventually eventually it resolves. Right, right. So, uh, so yeah, I think one one thing that's really important for people to understand about the OCI is that it is fully operated by the Linux Foundation. They have a set of what's called collaboration projects, of which the OCI is one of many. Um, uh, CNCF is also a collaboration project, and, and I know there's a whole list on the Linux Foundation website. Uh, but what that means is that um, there is a charter for the OCI signed by all the members as of, uh, I believe, December last year, which explicitly states the governance model. Uh, there is a technical oversight board that meets. Um, there is a certification and trademark working group. Um, there is a uh, sort of technical committee. I forget if I have that name quite right. There's so many foundations that have named things slightly the same. That, uh, But think of that as sort of the core maintainers of the OCI projects. Um, and each sub-project has its maintainers with its own governance for how maintainers are added. Uh, Docker is obviously a core player in the OCI. 
but the TOB contains um, members from from quite a few companies, um, including you know CoreOS and Google and Red Hat, um, and so, and so anything that can't be handled through standard open source debate and consensus uh, goes up to the TOB uh, for resolution. Um, there maybe have been a few things that, that have ended up there in the last year. Uh, part of it was really understanding the scope of OCI. So there was a little bit of debate about the scope, whether it was only the runtime spec or whether image format or even image distribution would be part of that discussion. And so the TOB helped um, the parties uh, agree on a, a scope, which is also there embodied in the charter that you can find online. Um, so all, all that said that I think um, definitely uh, there can be disagreement about um, potential directions with, with the spec or additions or changes. Uh, the image format itself has had you know some back and forth on its scope. Uh, but for the most part, these are being worked out by you know potential competitors in this space who also happen to work together well uh, on just the pure technology technology definitions. Um, and so we see the OCI uh, as, as a good place with uh, common governance that's not controlled by a single vendor. Um, and that, you know, good, good work has been done there by, by parties that, that could be seen as competitors, but who are working well together to uh, make this kind of standard definition at the, at the lower layer. How does the OCI evolution relate to the container orchestration layer where we have Kubernetes, Mesos, Docker Swarm, other orchestrators? Yeah, so so the relationship um, has been fairly clear that OCI will not... Um, have any say in that space that, that that's left up to um, higher layer, both communities and very specifically the, the cloud native computing foundation CNCF um, sort of has a block diagram that says we'll consume a container runtime based around OCI, uh, but we'll look at the higher, higher layer of orchestration um, so I don't see OCI trying to expand into that space at all. I think the scope uh, of the of the project is is fairly clear. Um, but you know we'll definitely see um, CNCF and and other communities um, trying to to work at that higher layer of orchestration. Um, I don't think at this point we're going to see sort of the same idea around a specification. I mean, that's not the stated purpose of the CNCF at this point. Um, it's been more a place uh, to, to be an umbrella for, for projects related to cloud native, um, which, you know, at, at least today is uh, with our first um, contribution from Google of Kubernetes, the CNCF has mostly uh, been the the management of the, the Kubernetes project, as well as Prometheus and, and a few others coming down the pike. Um, so, yeah, long answer again, but but OCI, I think, will remain very uh, specifically focused on only the container runtime at the lower layer. Mm. So, 
Kubernetes today, as far as I know, maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken about this. I I thought is there is there a tight coupling between Kubernetes and Docker? Like, do you have to use Docker containers to use Kubernetes? Yeah. So um, definitely, up until recently, uh, the expectation is that Kubernetes would package a version of the Docker engine and that when you started up a Kubernetes pod, it was actually running Docker containers and Docker images would be loaded, uh, you know, to actually start those containers. Uh, That's still the case in the current version that by default, you're going to be running the Docker engine. Um, There are uh, communities within Kubernetes that have enabled things like replacing that with Rocket, uh, from CoreOS. So there's Rocket Netties. You can find that project uh, within the broader Kubernetes community. Um, and most recently, some of the OCI participants from Red Hat have created a, um, a replacement that's trying to only use OCI components. Now that there's an image spec and there's some tooling around using OCI images. Um, they've actually which just and that seems like the ideal. I mean, uh, for judging from my conversation with you, yeah, yeah. So, so definitely using OCI format images and OCI compliant runtimes um, makes a lot of sense. Um, I think we'll kind of see where this goes as far as this new incubated project. Um, I think OCID is its current names for like OCI Daemon. Um, obviously as Docker or any project becomes officially compliant with the OCI specifications, both image and runtime, that, that it should be a replaceable component with anything that's OCI compliant. Um, so yes, I I think, um, there, there will be a, uh, continued attempts to see if, if, uh, what, what's the best, um, sort of execution engine, uh, to to fit underneath Kubernetes and hopefully OCI interfaces um, are are the norm and that whether Docker is the implementer of that or something else should be a um, you know end user specific choice uh, in the future. Mm. Now there there's been this acrimony recently. I don't know to what degree it's. Um, if it's it's just like Twitter, Twitter clickbait or word bait, whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, you know, I, I mentioned that that I mentioned Bitcoin earlier as a joke. But uh, I think actually the, this the container debate uh, from a distance, at least, it seems somewhat. It r- reminds me of the Bitcoin and Ethereum debates uh, and forking issues and stuff just because there's all this contention and all this acrimony and it ends up being well in in the bitcoin community at least it's ended up being i feel it's like it's been a productive discussion long term i mean i don't know if you follow the bitcoin community at all but like it's resulted in ethereum coming around it's resulted in um yeah there was this this bitcoin fork stuff that happened early on that was 
or that happened earlier. I think I have a year ago or half a year ago or so. And this was like really, really worrisome stuff within the Bitcoin community. But in the long, in the long run, it turns out like, oh, this this stuff is these disagreements are actually really important to resolve because it's looking like this is going to be core infrastructure stuff, and there's just no getting around that there's going to be some conflicts. Um, the same stuff has happened in the Ethereum community with this this DAO conflict stuff. You know, the, the DAO got hacked essentially, and then they decided to fork Ethereum. This is like a $150 million decision. Um, and it's obviously less uh, directly financial in the world of Docker and containers, but it is, of course, financial. It is, of course, emotional for people, this this there's this threat of a fork that pe- these rumors of a fork, of a Docker fork. Um, I don't know how much you want to touch on this, but I'd just be very curious to get either your direct thoughts about these discussions about a fork, what that might mean, or just meta discussions about when we're talking about forking uh, core infrastructure technologies in. September 2016. Yeah, sure. Um, it's definitely been uh, very interesting to to see it from the perspective of someone very involved in some of these open source communities. And, you know, so, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to give people a little more context, the narrative that I have heard about Docker being potentially forked is Docker injected some uh, capability, some some built-in capability for their swarm orchestrator in the Docker command line, and that irked some people in the broader community. But maybe you could tell me what's correct about that, and sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. That's good to, to kind of uh, set, set the background. And, and I think um, for most respects, that that's, uh, that action is maybe the um, the linchpin of it but it's not sort of the start of, of contention I've already mentioned a few times um, that that core OS had been involved in the docker community and uh, differences of kind of technical direction led them to create their own container execution engine in rocket um, OCI was definitely partly seen as, as a way to quell some of the 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 disagreements there, um, and now now we're at kind of a higher layer where uh, Kubernetes has become quite popular. Um, Docker is both uh, an open source project, but also, as we all know, uh, a startup with significant funding and, and a lot of momentum. Um, and including their their sort of most recent uh, attempt at an orchestration layer directly within the Docker engine was seen uh, definitely by some as a shot across the bow. Uh, and uh, I, I think to credit Docker, the, the, the fact that, um, that Docker has become popular enough that, that, that there's an attempt to want to continue to use it, not, not to switch to something else, but actually use Docker itself uh, and just fork it so that there can be more control um, you know, obviously shows that that Docker is seen as a as a very critical and core component of a lot of these higher layer systems. Uh, and as you said, I think there there's definitely a perception that that containers uh, are very possibly the future for for a good while of, of infrastructure for the cloud. 
Um, there's a lot of emotion around, uh, you know, what people have created and the various, uh, you know, moment, momentum around those various projects that people are very attached to their, you know, solutions. Uh, and I, I guess we shouldn't ignore that, that potentially everyone understands there, there's a lot of money uh, at stake here uh, with, with sort of whoever wins if, if someone quote unquote wins uh, in that sense. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely understand the, the sentiments and the emotion. Um, I think, and I hope that we're going to see some, some responses, uh, to all this clamor. It's definitely affecting, um, you know, morale in various communities to have so much contention that's kind of unresolved and, and sort of sitting there behind the surface. Um, I know uh, for a fact that, that Docker cares about that and they uh, have worked hard to have their own open source community. And, and, you know, just another sort of meta point is that, uh, you know, prior to Docker Swarm being integrated in the engine, uh, I think that just the whole perception that Docker Inc. Uh, controls Docker very tightly has been um, a point of contention that, that has also led to this moment of, you know, the various uh, groups who, who are saying it's, it's time to, to wrest that control from, from the sort of corporate sponsor of the open source project. Um, you know, we're uh, at IBM, we're, we're involved in, in all these communities. And so uh, our, our intention is to hopefully find solutions that, that aren't quite as drastic as, as trying to, to wrest control and, and, fork an open source project. But as you said, I mean, it's, uh, I think Donnie Burkholz talked with the Newstack uh, folks soon after some of this uh, chatter started uh, on, on Twitter and a few blog posts um, and, and gave kind of a history looking back at, at various forks that have been successful and unsuccessful. And in most cases, um, there's been, in all the positive cases, there's been a resolution and some good things have come out of, of that discussion happening that, that, uh, you know, made some, some parties consider, you know, ways that, that these issues could be, uh, attacked better and, and resolved better and communities operated better. So, uh, I'm hoping that, um, that in the next month or so, we'll see some concrete steps to, um, to solve some of these issues, uh, whether or not all parties accept them, we'll see. But I think, uh, I think, there's definitely a willingness to to look at this as a chance to um, to figure out some some hard things about moving forward uh, with the various pieces of this ecosystem, if you will. Let's hope so, um, and I will continue to cover it in future episodes of Software Engineering Daily. Phil, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a wide-ranging and deeply technical conversation. I really appreciate you joining me on Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks. It's been great to be here and and good to chat with you. Great, Phil. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash S-E daily. Thanks again, Symphono. 
Wow.